This episode is brought to you by Healer's Ruin, the unique and exhilarating fantasy novel by author Chris O'Mara. Chalos the Healer is marching to war as the Ten Plains King lays siege to the Kingdom of the Realm. The healer realizes that if he is to survive on the front lines, he must think and fight like a soldier. But Chalos isn't a soldier, he doesn't even own a sword, and he's starting to think he might be on the wrong side. When a mysterious hero starts slaughtering the healer's comrades by the score, Chalos will need to choose between following the king's orders or saving the souls of those he holds dear. Healer's Ruin by Chris O'Mara Empires Clash, Gods Walk, Kingdoms Tremble, and sorcery carves a bright and blazing path across an ancient and mysterious land. Healer's Ruin by Chris O'Mara Available now on Amazon Kindle eBook and paperback or read for free with Amazon Kindle Prime. Pick up your copy today. Book Geeks Uncompromised is a weekly podcast by two serious nerds that have a passion for fantasy and science fiction stories. Join in their discussions as they dive into current topics in the world of sci-fi and fantasy, review fantastic books, share their sometimes unpopular opinions, and interview some awesome authors. Join Danny and Greg for news, reviews, and interviews at bookgeeksunc.com. Follow us on Twitter at bookgeeksunc or Facebook at 2bookgeeksunc. You can also download any of our past episodes on your favorite podcatcher app. That was Book Geeks Uncompromised, where we make reading less solitary. This is author Raymond D. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward it's the grim tidings podcast this is Rob Bethine. I'm Philip Overby. Our guest is the author of the Shadow Campaigns series, which includes The Thousand Names, The Shadow Throne, The Price of Valor, The Guns of Empire, and Book 5, The Infernal Battalion, due in January of 2018. Other works include The Forbidden Library, Middle Grade Fantasy Series, and the Sci-Fi Urban Fantasy, John Golden Series. He's a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University with degrees in computer science and creative writing. Eventually found his way to Microsoft in Seattle, where he now lives with a couple of cats and a mountain of books. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Django Wexler to the show. Django, thank you for being here today. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to see you. <laughs> we're going to interview like... you. I hope you're excited because we're excited to have you on. I'm excited. I'm always excited, but that's not true. I'm excited right now. You are the author of the seminal Flintlock Fantasy series, The Shadow Campaigns, which includes... Four books now, the fifth book coming out in January. You've written the Middle Grade Forbidden Library fantasy series and the sci-fi urban fantasy cyberpunk John Golden series. So you have a whole variety of things that you write. So let's just delve into your writing a little bit today, Jingle Rexler. It's a pleasure to get you on the show today. You had to wake up extra early today to to join us. So thank you again for, for stirring from your slumber and uh, for not writing right now and for just talking with us on the show. We greatly appreciate it. 
I would definitely be writing and not sleeping. I can tell you that much. <laughs> What's your are you so you're a full time writer right now, or are you? I am. Okay. It's it's sort of shocking to me that that this has continued to be the state of affairs, but but it's been five years now. I left Microsoft in what 2012. Yeah, so five years. Have you upgraded to Windows 10 yet? Uh, on my <laughs> laptop, I have. Okay. Um, I, you know, I tend not to upgrade until something breaks. <laughs> um, but I left during the whole Windows 8 debacle, so you know, I could tell stories. But that's probably not what we're on this podcast for. <laughs> I have I have Windows 8 at work. Oh God, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah, that's well, my that's my no, review. Nobody liked it, and that was the whole problem. I especially don't like it though. So let's just start from the start, Django. When did you start writing? Um. When did I start writing? When did you start? When did you first pick up a pen and, and try to craft a story? It's so for me, writing evolved out of running role playing games, basically. Um, so I got into D and D when I was very young, maybe ten or twelve, um, and then in a more serious way in high school, um, I played a game called Rifts uh, a lot. Um, I played it, you know, twice a week, six hours at a time, in a in a frenzy that seems difficult to uh to fathom for me now because i'm like how did i have so much free time um but that was high school uh but so i and i was the gm for these games so i was crafting these stories and and that was kind of what i did for creative stuff and i got frustrated with it because it's hard to craft a really you know for various reasons role-playing games have it's hard to like get the story to work properly and I got frustrated with characters who wouldn't do what I want them to do so uh, I had more control in actual writing so that's a long-winded way of saying probably at 16 or 17 I wrote a science fiction short story which I sent to Asimov's and they quite rightly rejected Um, but I was kind of hooked at that point and so I kept doing it that's very ambitious for a 16 year old just to ship that off to Asimov's with well, I didn't know any better, really. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been reading short fiction. I was much more... It's funny. These days, I read almost exclusively fantasy. I mean, I guess a little bit of science fiction. But, like, when I was a teenager, I read a lot of science fiction, a lot of golden age science fiction, you know, Asimov and Clark. And I had all the best short story anthologies and so on. Um, and so I was just like, that's just what you do, right? You know, you send it off to the magazines once you finish the fiction. Turns out that's not. You, I mean, these days it's it's a little different than it was in the '60s. But I didn't have any great expectations. But uh, that was what I did. Probably didn't have an idea that as many years later that you would be a full time writer after five years. No. Yeah. I mean, like being a full time writer was never really my like life plan. I didn't think it was practical. Um, I went to Carnegie Mellon, and I have degrees in creative writing, but also in computer science. Um, and computer science was always supposed to be my, you know, job. Um, I figured I would be a computer programmer and write novels on the side. And I was for many years. So the fact that I can do this for a living is still kind of shocking to me. That's a pretty, um, common, uh, foundation I've found amongst fantasy authors is that, uh, gaming background and game mastering and story world creation evolving into just writing stories. Yeah. D and D is, is, is kind of like a sneaky way into writing, I think, because I feel like for a lot of people, the, the reason that they don't just like sit down and write is like a confidence thing. And D&D, you know, because it's a collaborative effort kind of helps with that. 
you know, people who, who wouldn't have the self-confidence to say, I'm just going to sit down and bang out a story and send it to people because that's hard. You know, we'll sit down with their buddies and play D&D and then you kind of work your way up to it. So let's talk a little bit about your series here. Um, you've got three, three series. Um, I think you're probably most... Noted work is probably the... The Shadow Campaigns. Um, tell us about maybe how that series evolved and uh, how the Flintlock Fantasy stuff came to you and how it got started. Let's see. So the story is I read George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, like everyone else. I happened to read it in uh, 2001, 2002, I think, which means that the first three books were out, but the, the fourth and fifth hadn't come out yet, if I remember correctly. Could be wrong. And I really love that series. Um, I still do. Uh, I hope someday to read the rest of it. <laughs> so the thing I loved about A Song of Ice and Fire, along with you know all the other stuff that George does so well, is the way he took the kind of standard medieval knights and castles world back to its historical roots, which in this case is like 13th and 14th century England and Scotland, basically. Like a bunch of the events that happen are based on English and Scottish history. And the technology is kind of at about that level of, you know, full plate and jousting and all that stuff. But like a lot of medieval fantasy in the sort of traditional Tolkien mode gets kind of disconnected from that historical reality. And so George kind of brought that back. And I thought, this is really cool, and I would love to do something like this. But I don't want to do that same time period because, A, it's just kind of really standard issue, and B, he had already done it so well that I'm like, nah, I don't need to do that. Um, so that was one idea that I had at the kind of back of my mind. And then in the meantime, I'd gotten really interested in history, almost exclusively thanks to wargaming, a bunch of my friends in Pittsburgh were really into historical wargaming, and I started going to their group, and then they started giving me, like, history books to read. And I found that once I wasn't, like, in class anymore, I was actually really interested in this stuff, which is, I had always thought of it as kind of boring in school. But it turns out if you get to pick the books that you read, then it's actually way more interesting. And so I ended up reading a book. We were playing some Napoleonic war games. Um, and they gave me a book called The Campaigns of Napoleon by David Chandler. This is a great book that I highly recommend. It's one of these gigantic thousand-page detailed histories. And I was reading that and just all these great stories that are in it, and I thought this, is, this would make for a great fantasy series, and this is a great time period to do what I was thinking about with, with George Martin, the uh, a sort of more historically based fantasy with very light magic. And so that's kind of where Shadow Campaigns came from, was the sort of combination of reading about Napoleon and wanting to sort of emulate George. So how does the magic actually tie into the Flintlock fantasy settings? Because from the standpoint of someone who's not familiar with it, they may not understand well, what is the fantastical aspect of the genre. Is it is it magic heavy? Are there monsters? Are there, there gods and goddesses interfering with humans? What kind of elements are tied into Flintlock fantasy? I mean, it really depends on what kind of story you're trying to tell. You know, people are always... I feel bad because Brian's not here, but when he comes on, he can he can dispute this characterization or not. But but um, we've talked about it before. So Brian and I are always getting Brian McClellan, that is, are always getting compared because our books came out at about the same time. And we both do this Flintlock thing. Um, and I think it's it's a good example of two different um, sort of equally valid approaches. 
um, you know, Brian's books come at it. I sort of in a Brandon Sanderson mode with a very high magic. And so the magic is sort of intimately tied to the gunpowder and the gunpowder mages are very powerful and can wreck whole lots of people by themselves. And so that's kind of a high magic setting and there are gods involved and it's, you know, it, it, it's more in the vein of, of Sanderson or Wheel of Time or Miles on Book of the Fall and these kind of high magic settings. When I was doing mine, I really wanted to do the military stuff in a way that was historically, I don't want to say historically accurate because that's kind of a weird term for fantasy, but that like I wanted it to kind of match the feel I got from reading these histories. Um, and so that meant that the magic couldn't be too overt. It had to be pretty subtle um, because otherwise it's going to change everything. Um, and so, I mean, first of all, in this world, magic is is kind of limited. You know, a, a person with magic might be able to be a better fighter than than a normal person and fight 10 guys, but not 100 or 1,000. And so on an actual battlefield, it's not all that important. But also in my world, they've kind of banished magic. There's an, an organization associated with their religion, um, the Priest of the Black, that kind of suppresses it. And so most people don't even believe in magic anymore. Um, that's the sort of case at the start of the book. And then the the plot has to do with kind of how this has been hidden and how it might come back, which, you know, as it happens, is kind of the way George R. R. Martin's books are structured, which is, you know, not an accident. You know, in, in George R. R. Martin, in the in the first book, you know, all the, the knights and so on don't really believe in magic and they have gods, but they're not kind of like interventionist physical gods. And then over the course of the books, there's dragons and magic becomes a little more of a thing. Did you feel that you had something pretty special when um, the first book was coming together? I mean, yes. Well, Okay, it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> I knew I wanted it to be a five book series or or something close to that because I had this kind of vague outline of what the series would be. But I didn't know when I was writing it that this would be the thing that sold and that I actually got to finish. I had, you know, I have a bunch of novels that, you know, I wrote and never really saw the light of day. And now I look back and I'm pretty glad about that, to be honest, because some of them we need a lot of work to see the right of day. But, um, you know, I like to think I get better. Um, and so I was going along and going along. And this is the one where finally I, you know, managed to sell it. So, you know, I didn't really know at the time that this was going to be, you know, my debut novel for professional writing. Um, it was just another book. And then your publisher um, is uh, Ace Rock. Yep. Uh, and then... Um was it easy for you to get an agent when you were trying to get the manuscript for the thousand names out? No, um, getting agents is hard. I mean, it's funny cause people ask, you know, and they're all, people get agents in all kinds of weird ways just by like meeting them at cons or like, you know, there's all kinds of funny stories and I did it in the most standard way possible, which is, you know, I got a list of all the agents who I thought might be good for this book. And I picked out about probably 50 of them. And then I sent, you know, they each have their, their guidelines that say, you know, send three pages and, you know, a query letter and blah, 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 blah. And so I carefully made up a bunch of packages and or emails and sent them out and then waited. And I think out of the 50, I think I got two positive responses, which is actually pretty good, you know, as a record. To be honest, I have past books that I'd sent out a ton of responses and got nothing. So <laughs> it took a while. 
What is the reader response so far to uh, your stories? Is, is is there any criticism of, at all about like the gun technology or anything? Because I know some people can be sticklers for that kind of stuff. Like if it's not completely 100% accurate, what the <laughs> historical thing would be. In fantasy, the, the three subjects that you have to be careful because people will be sticklers about are guns, horses, and boats. Um, because there are people who are super into all three of those things and they will totally correct your, your usage. Actually on that subject, I have not gotten really any pushback. Fortunately, the technology is not all that complicated. Um, certainly not compared to like modern guns, you know, things were a little simpler back then. Um, this is, you know, circa 1800, uh, in our world. And, you know, I did, I've done a lot of reading just for fun and then also as explicit research for this. I've got people talking to me about how combat works, but not too many. And, you know, part of the reason that I write this kind of thing instead of a like a more modern sort of era of fighting is that it's hard. I would have a hard time writing about about modern combat because, like, there are people who actually do that in real life. And, like, I don't have that experience. You know, I'm just a sort of nerdy computer guy here in Washington. <laughs> you know, I'm not Mike Cole. <laughs> you know, if you want to read about, like, accurate modern combat, go read Mike's books because he knows his shit from experience. But when it comes to the Napoleonic Wars, right, like, all we have is letters and, you know, diaries and all the primary sources. And I can read those as well as anyone else. So I feel like I'm still qualified to talk about it. But no, I haven't gotten much pushback on that front. Probably the thing that people object to most, at least that I think is a valid objection, is in the first book, there's some stuff that the colonialism is an issue. And I kind of knew that going in because it's part of the era and it wasn't the subject that I really wanted to take on in these books. But it's a problem. It's a problematic part of this story, I have to say. I don't know if I'd do it differently if I was doing it over again, but I'd at least think about it, about doing it differently. I have people object to things like the fact that there are gay characters, which like, I don't know, screw those people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had one woman object to the fact that my characters swear, and I'm like... I was like, you know, these are soldiers. There's a reason we have the, like, to swear like a sailor. (laughs) Oh, that was the one that made me sad because she said, you know, this is a fantasy book, so children will be reading it. And I'm like, I really hope not. (laughs) If children want to read it, that's fine, as long as they're, you know, feel that it's appropriate for them. But the implication that all fantasy is automatically for children made me sad. Mm. Right. You said uh, you said guns, horses, and boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually the title of my next book I'm working on: guns, <laughs> nice. horses, and boats. It's a sequel to Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yeah, and I want as many people as possible to criticize the shit out of my book. <laughs> well, those three things, man. People know their their guns, their horses, and their boats. There are people who are experts. I'm just gonna make up horses. Yeah, I'm gonna make, it, I'm gonna make up some fancy horse name and I have, piss everybody off. In a piece I'm working on now, they don't have horses; they have like giant riding birds. Because I'm like, I don't want to deal with like realistic horses. It's too hard. <laughs> I mean, really, it's like they have limitations, and I'm like, the giant riding birds are magic, and so they can get around some of the the horse, you know, realistic horse problems. Hashtag horse problems. Hashtag horse problems. Hit us up on Twitter. Hashtag horse problems. (laughs) 
If you got a problem with your horse. Don't hit me up. I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> Take it. Django, I'll hook you up with some horse knowledge. <laughs> I want to try to make Curse like a podcaster a thing, too. So, <laughs> so eventually, uh, during some point in your career, you decided to write middle grade. Yeah. My agent, Seth, took the thousand names, um, and I did a revision for him. And then I wrote a synopsis of the rest of the series. And then he was going to go out and try to sell it to publishers. And that takes a while. It took about, I don't know, six weeks. And there was also some dead time before that because, you know, I, I think I finished it in like December and he was like, well, they're not going to be back until January anyway. So I had some time and I was like, I want to do something else. You know, I got to start writing something. So I'm writing this new project. And I knew that I wanted it to be shorter. The Thousand Names is very long. The books are about 200,000 words each, which is long. And so I had this vague idea that if I wrote a kid's book, it would be shorter. Um, and I had no idea how to write a kid's book. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and so I just thought, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of keep the first book of Harry Potter in mind and kind of try to write to that level of, of diction. And that I, I did that. And then I sent it to Seth and I was like, what do you think? Can we sell this? And he was like, yeah, I know exactly where to sell this. And so he sold it, which was great. And then my editor, um, Kathy Dawson at Kathy Dawson Books, who who went through that uh kind of helped me actually make it a middle grade book and like adjust it as needed because she actually knows what she's doing <laughs> what were a couple of the tweaks that you needed to implement we made the main character a little bit younger i think i think she was originally 14 and i think we made her 12 hmm. um because the middle grade target audience is 8 to 12 and the book didn't feel like YA, which I agree with. It was definitely not a YA book. There's some language stuff. There's no swearing in those books, obviously. Uh, I had to take that out. I knew <laughs> when I was writing it, I was like, okay, no swearing, no sex, and no, like, gore. Those are the three things. Like, I try not to write down to kids because I hate it when people do that. But, like, I was like, I got to leave at least those three things out. Uh, so I did that. But there were just some words where, like, Kathy was like, I don't think 12-year-olds are going to know what this means. I, the one I remember is gnomon, the, the little thing that sticks up from the center of a sundial, G-N-O-M-O-N. She's like, yeah, we're going to take that out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. But uh, not too much, actually. I was actually kind of surprised. I was expecting a kind of heavier uh, hand. Mm -hmm. and, um, they did a good job. Do you think uh, kids these days are a little bit different than um, I don't know how old you are, uh, you in your 30s, maybe? Yeah, I'm 36. OK, same age as me. So when I was 12, I was watching Tales from the Crypt and that was full of sex, violence and <laughs> gore and cursing. So I was kind of brought up on that kind of thing. And so and like Ren and Stimpy and like screwed up cartoons and stuff. So uh, do you think kids don't lean that that way as much now are they more clean-minded so to speak i guess i i wouldn't say that I, I mean i think it varies wildly you know it depends on what your parents let you watch and what you manage to sneak out and watch beforehand i mean a lot of that stuff you know in the 80s that we ended up watching wasn't intended for kids you know <laughs> yeah. uh, nobody intended for kids to watch robocop but they did anyway love that um, movie. 
<laughs> but uh, so I think it depends on the kids. It depends on the parents. It depends on a lot of things. Um, I think as a as a culture, we have always been weirdly like super hung up on sex, but okay with violence. And I feel like that has become even more true that casual violence is like super okay in pg-13 movies these days but like the slightest mention of sex is not allowed i don't know but that may just be me with you know nostalgic memories i don't know (laughs) things i don't know i would hesitate to pronounce on kids these days because i feel like once i do that i might as well just start shaking my cane i have a cane (laughs) i have no insult to anyone who actually has a cane I would have a decorative cane just to shake at kids to get off my lawn. (laughs) Was there ever a consideration to have a pen name for the Forbidden Library or just use your... We talked about it. We ultimately didn't see much of a reason to. I wasn't that well known of an author that it felt like people were going to be like, oh, Django Wexler, doesn't he write those adult books? Maybe this isn't suitable for kids. So, you know, it was, it was just the one series. And it was, it, I felt like I'd like to establish myself as someone who does a bunch of different things rather than mm-hmm. doing only the one thing. So it felt like using the name. Plus, everyone likes Django Wexler. People keep telling me, you have the best pen name. And I'm like, you got you to gotta thank my parents. I didn't pick it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you do have the coolest author name. Well, thank you. I'll yeah. pass that on. Yeah. You know, I, I I can't claim responsibility. It's just what are other cool author names? Um, cool author names. There's Cameron a, Hurley. That's a pretty cool name. Hurley's a good name. Chuck I like, Tingle. I like Chuck Paolo Bacigalupi because I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing it. <laughs> I can never spell it. Um, I mean, and his books are really good. Or um, the guy who wrote The Quantum Thief. His first name is Hanu, and his last name I can't pronounce. It's it's uh, Finnish. Ram, Ramana, I, I don't know. I really can't pronounce it. Mm. I probably should be able to, and someone probably told me once, and I've forgotten. But his books are really good, and you should read them. Go read The Quantum Thief. I, I'll give this plug to make up for the fact that I can't pronounce it, which I feel bad about now. I like Lemony Snicket. That's a good name. It's got I that, wish that was my real name, Lemony it's got, Overby. It's got prosody. <laughs> diversification in your publishing streams. So you're doing middle grade, you're doing flitlock fantasy. You've got the um, John Golden series, which is kind of a sci-fi fantasy cyberpunk thing going on. Uh-huh. Um, and then you, you do short stories and well, not novels. Yes. Although not as much anymore. I did a bunch of short stories cause I had a bunch of free time at one point and now my schedule has gotten kind of full. So I'm doing that a little less, but I got a lot of invitations to anthologies And there was a period when I thought this was just the coolest thing ever and hadn't quite learned to say no. And then my schedule was like, you know, jammed. I was like, oh, God, how am I going to deliver all these stories? Um, So I've gotten a little better at being like, "Eh, your anthology is really cool. And thank you for thinking of me. But like, I really don't have time. But yeah, uh, short stories are fun. They're they're kind of an indulgence in some ways because. Honestly, you don't get paid as much. So, you know, taking the time to do them, at least for me, it takes me a while. I know some people, speaking of Cameron Hurley, do short stories and they can they can do them in a really, you know, quick fashion and have it still be good. And so they're, you know, worth doing. Whereas for me, it takes a long time to do a short story. And I'm like, well, you know, I could do that or I could write quarter of a novel and Mm -hmm. 
Also, my short stories end up like bloating and getting longer and longer, and so they all <laughs> end up as novellas. Um, that's actually kind of how John Golden came to be, is that like I had this idea for a short story, and it ended up being 20,000 words long. And is John Golden, is that self-published now? It is self-published now. It was okay. with um, Ragnarok Publications, uh, mm-hmm. but they went through like a bunch of changes and merged with some other companies, and I ended up getting the rights back. So yeah, it's self-published. Uh, you can get it on Amazon uh, as a paperback or an ebook, or there's actually an audio version on mm. Audible, which I like very much. So you're full on hybrid. A little bit. I mean, that's a pretty minor part of, of my publishing stream. Okay. Um, you know, it's more of a side project than I would say like a real hybrid author thing, but you know, it, it's a good, I feel like the dichotomy between self-published and traditionally published is kind of a, a false one. Like you, each project has its own demands and you just kind of do what you need to do. It's time for the contractually obliged Grimdark question. Okay. Django Wexler, we tend to talk about Grimdark on the show. It's the Grim Tidings podcast, so makes sense. Um, do you- That's logical. <laughs> we try to be logical. It doesn't always happen, but... People are sort of very unclear on like what Grimdark actually means and what just it is. Just a little. Which is which makes sense. And so here (laughs) here is my take, which is that Grimdark is about the book's attitude to like people like Grim isn't about the trappings. You know, I feel like, you know, the first book that that sort of coined these terms was um, Joe Abercrombie, obviously, and the first law series and so on. And people get the trappings confused with the essence um, and so, yes, you know, Joe Abercrombie, these books are like, you know, there's a lot of torture and, they're, you know, it's very gritty and, and sort of realistic violence and, and people get killed all the time and major characters get killed off and so on. George R. R. Martin gets associated with Grimdark, too. And I think those are both valid, but I think that's not like what makes it Grimdark is not the torture and, you know, bathing everyone in blood and crap all the time. Um, what makes it Grimdark is a, is its view towards humanity and human nature, that these books take a very dark view of people. If you've read Joe Abercrombie's Best Served Cold is probably my favorite of his books, I would say. I love that book with a burning passion. And, you know, not to get into, like, spoiler territory, but, like, I love that book because both because it's a good story and because at a sort of metaphor allegorical level, it works really well. And it kind of asks this question of, like, can people change for the better, right? Is it possible to become a better person? And then it answers that question emphatically not, right? Every character in that book tries to become better than they are and fails miserably, right? And that's a pretty grim view of human nature. (laughs) But, like, that's what makes that a grimdark story. It's not the blood and gore and sex. It's it's that. And my example for this is always K.J. Parker, because I think those are some of the grimdarkest books you can ever read but they don't have a lot of the you know gritty sort of abercrombie-esque long fight scenes and people getting cut to pieces and all that stuff the way people act is just so grim and you know it works kj parker makes it work but if you ask me like the engineer series kj parker's engineer series is possibly the grim darkest series ever written to explain why requires some spoilers so i can't really go there but like man 
you get to the end of that and it's like being punched in the face, uh, which is like good in a good way, like a good punch in the face. Um, and so long story short, I feel like Thousand Names isn't Grimdark, um, not because it doesn't have all the like the trappings of Grimdark, but because it has a kind of more of a belief in people being good. It's more optimistic and it varies even by the individual work. Like I would say Joe Abercrombie's Shattered Sea series, uh, his YA series, which I also like very much, is much less grimdark, not because it's any less violent, like it still has a lot of the same stuff as the first Law series, but it just takes a different view towards how people work. Or um, if you've read A Crown for Cold Silver, uh, which is a wonderful book uh, by Alex Marshall that I highly recommend, it has a lot of similarities with First Law, but its attitude towards its characters is very different, and so I would not call it uh, a grimdark book. Yeah, I like the how the characters are flawed and and they all have their own personal struggles, but it doesn't. I would agree, it doesn't really feel like grimdark. It has dark elements, but um, not necessarily grimdark. Yeah, I think I, I have a psychological explanation for grimdark. Mm-hmm. That I just that I just came up with like five seconds ago. Brilliant, um, well thought out. Yes. So hear me out. Mm-hmm. But I think it's like the Looking Glass self uh, idea. Mm-hmm. Um, however you perceive yourself is how others may perceive you. So I think maybe Grimdark is one of these kind of things. Is like however you perceive yourself in a dark or grim capacity. That's that's what you put onto the book as you're reading it. So I, I think that's why Grimdark is so nebulous is just because people have different ideas of what is gray morality or what is, you know, whatever. That, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it, you know, what qualifies as grim is obviously varies depending on the person. That was good. Like your last uh, analogy, Phil, that you did for the Grimdark hamburger. That was really cool. <laughs> the Grimdark hamburger. Yeah. What did I say? Put some bacon on it. Black bun. <laughs> you you kind of choose the toppings that you put on it. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. if some people like tomato on their grimdark hamburger and some <laughs> people like lettuce, some people don't like pickles, so take the fucking pickles off. <laughs> but saying. the beef is human misery. That's like the yeah. essential element. But you could have chicken also. So you could take the beef out and you could put some chicken in there. If you, don't, if you don't like the human misery, you could put some other shit in there. <laughs> put some pineapple juice on it. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. Don't get into the definition of what is and isn't a burger, or the internet will kill Oh, you. shit. <laughs> so guns, burgers. Horses, yeah, burgers. Boats. Horses. Horses. Barbecue. Anime. Anime. You like anime. I do. A whole lot. I have been watching anime ever since I was a teenager, but more seriously since I got to college, and one of my best friends in college was a, a huge anime guy, and... Got me into the anime club there, and then I s- ended up studying some Japanese in college and all that. Ooh. Well, I would love to interview you in Japanese, but my skill is whack. <laughs> whack as shit. <laughs> it, that would be not a good interview for me either. So. Uh, your top two favorite animes. Top two. That's top two. Um, people ask me this question, and I have like a list. Hang on. Mm. Up the list. Um, So my favorite, my sort of canonical favorite anime is Maho Shoujo Madoka Magica, which is like the best anime ever made, and everyone should watch it. 
it's one of these things that like looks like it's one thing, but is in fact something different entirely. It's almost hard to talk about without spoilers. Like it has wow. a sort of cutesy magical girl look and then it gets different. So um, <laughs> I urge everyone to just go watch it. Uh, magical girl, Madoka Magica or something like that. Is that on Crunchyroll or is that? It's probably not anymore. Probably now okay. it's just on DVD. It's years old by now. Gotcha. Um, picking a second one would be hard for me. If I twisted your um, arm and I said, Django Ruxler, tell me your second favorite anime. Second favorite. Or I'm not going to let go. Tear off your Hard. arm. I have the, I'm, I'm staring at this list and I don't want to. Uh, um, I might say Kino's Journeys, uh, Kino no Tabi, um, which is wonderful. Uh, it's this series of sort of vignettes about this girl who travels through a kind of weird future. It's not like a post-apocalyptic future, really. Maybe it is. It's hard to say. It, it's a sort of almost allegorical future where there's a bunch of cities and they they do they're all weird and do different things um and this girl and her talking motorcycle travel through them and it it's mostly a sort of vignette type of story um but it's really wonderful so that would probably be just my arm that might be the second one but talking there's a bunch of contenders that's weird do you have a uh is that list that you have there is that public um can somebody peep that list or i don't know if it's up anywhere uh I've posted it on Reddit. Um, well, they can always head over to DjangoWexler.com and check yeah, out the blog posts and such. I'll tweet and, it when I okay. um, when when we put this episode up. Wonderful. Or I'll put it on DjangoWexler.com. Yeah. One of those yeah. things. I was going to say, I like Fist of the North Star because they punch people and explode. Oh, and their heads explode? I fucking love that show. <laughs> Does anime help you in your writing or do you extrapolate anything from the anime that you're viewing and kind of translate into what you write? Absolutely. I mean... It's like any other stories, really. Like, I, I feel like as a writer, at least speaking for myself, you know, I'm constantly getting stuff and ideas from other stories. Um, so, you know, I read a lot and I watch a lot of anime and I watch a lot of movies and there's always little bits and pieces. You know, you think, oh, I want to do a character that's kind of like that or like, oh, the relationship between these two characters is really good or like, oh, that's a cool concept and I want to put it in a different story. People are always like, oh, you know, how much can you borrow from other people's story? And the, the trick is to, like, borrow little tiny pieces, not, like, big, you know, if you borrow a whole plot element or, like, you know, a whole character, then it starts to feel like a ripoff or, like, fan fiction, which, like, fan fiction is fine in context, but you shouldn't pass it off as original fiction. But, you know, if you borrow a little piece of a character and combine it with some other pieces of other characters, then it works fine. And so anime is good that way. It's, it, it has a lot of different types of stories and characters that you don't see much in some other forms. I used to say that anime is an example of what fantasy novels could be if they became completely unhinged. And that's, I'm just curious to see <laughs> if people could ever go in that direction with novel format. It's definitely possible. You know, I've been watching more regular U.S. TV because there's a lot of really good sci-fi and fantasy stuff coming out. Um, and that's just always been my genre that I love. Um, and so, you know, I just watched just watched Westworld and American Gods and The Expanse. And there's like probably a dozen others that I'm, I'm not mentioning. Like, so there's a bunch of good shows. But I feel like, especially when I was, was in high school and college, there just like wasn't that much good sci-fi fantasy out there. 
in US TV and like so anime was a revelation because it's like all this cool fantasy sci-fi stuff. You know, some of it's terrible, of course, but that's true of any genre. <laughs> can we bury yeah. a, an anime? What's the most terrible anime? Oh God, they get <laughs> really bad. <laughs> you can't uh, bury an anime. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of really bad shows. I mean, you know, anime is a genre like any other, and so like there's shows that are just pure cheesecake, and it's all just you know girls with giant breasts and there's tie-ins that are terrible there's some really bizarre stuff that comes out especially based on games like cheesy little cell phone games will get their own shows that make no <laughs> sense that happens a lot so like every every quarter new anime shows come out and it's a lot of shows it's usually like 30 damn and so my friends and i will often sort of make a list of all the ones that seem even vaguely interesting and watch one episode of each one. And then we sort of call the lists and we're like, no, that was boring. We need like a grim tidings podcast anime. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be good. It would just be me like getting kicked in the balls over and over <laughs> again. Probably. If you want a grim, dark anime, you got to watch berserk, which is about oh, yeah. as dark as anime gets. I think that's the top referenced one in our Facebook group. Grim, dark fiction readers and writers is berserk. That makes sense. I mean, in many ways, Berserk is the anime equivalent of the sort of grimdark stories of the, you know, the Joe Abercrombie or the George Martin or whoever. It's that dark and gory world with really grim characters. It it predates all the, the modern grimdark trend, though. Like, yeah. Berserk goes back to the 80s. I love how Berserk starts off like kind of traditional medieval kind of thing and then like towards the end of the the first movie or whatever it's like oh there's a bunch of fucking demons yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh shit <laughs> it just goes like completely off the rails You're like, oh. <laughs> spoiler sorry yeah. oh shit yeah that's all right from the 80s spoiler from, from the 80s, 80s right except it's still going i don't i don't know man like they talk about you know various authors who have haven't finished their series but like mira the guy who writes berserk I think it was after like 20 or 30 volumes. He said like, now I can finally start the main story. Oh <laughs> shit. Like, Are you kidding me? Like, there's no way. Like, Oh God. Good luck. Like, good luck, sir. <laughs> I hope insane. you live to be a hundred because <laughs> you're still going to be writing berserk. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time, but maybe we'll talk a little bit about your, your writing habits before we wrap up. We've got okay. quite a few writers who listen to the show so you're a full-time writer do you have a regular routine yeah for me routine is super important because um routine is what gets you through like sometimes writing is super fun and you can't wait to sit down and do it but like not always sometimes mm. it's horrible and you don't want to um and routine is what pulls you through the horrible parts so for me it, it's varied over the years depending on what my other commitments are these days i'm kind of a night owl uh mostly just because my girlfriend is and it's easy to adjust to her schedule so I wake up and I do some kind of like administrative crap until lunch. And then after lunch, I come back and I write. And usually I exercise and then I do another session of writing before dinner. And that's my like my day. Um, and I try, to do that. Friday or? I try to do it every day. You, often I end up taking Saturdays off because I spend Saturdays doing gaming for the most part. Um, sometimes I do a session in the morning on Saturdays. But yeah, I try, you know, when I'm re when I'm working, I try to work every day. It helps to keep sort of momentum up. 
Are you using uh, Microsoft Word or Scrivener or anything like that? I, I just use Word. The whole publishing hmm. industry runs on Word, and ah. you know okay. it's really hard to deviate from that. I mean, you know, people like Scrivener, and I've looked at it, and it's cool, but it's just not worth the sort of technical hassles to me. I don't do anything particularly fancy. Like, with writing, I just kind of start at the beginning and type until I get to the end of the book. Mm. Um, so I'm not, like, rearranging scenes or doing them in out of order or anything. So I don't have a lot of need for fancy features. And Word is actually quite good when it comes to editing. Like, the way their Word track changes can be a little obscure. Like the interface is not really intuitive, but like once you get the hang of it, it actually works pretty well. And do you have like a daily word count you shoot for or anything like that? Yeah. Um, for a long time, I did a thousand words a day when I was working, when I was like working at Microsoft. And then when I quit, I'm like, oh man, you know, I've been spending an hour a day and now I could do up to eight hours. I'm going to be so much more productive. And it turns out I'm not that much more productive. <laughs> There's some... There's some amount of creative energy that goes into the process that, like, I just can't duplicate, you know, just by spending more hours. These days, I tend to shoot for two or three thousand words a day, depending on what my deadlines are looking like. Three thousand words a day used to be a stretch for me, but these days I've been actually cranking it out at that rate. I did that for for the Infernal Battalion, which is about 200,000 words long. I wrote it in about three months, which is a pretty good rate. Even Yeah. You know, for me, um, I know people who write a lot faster. Is it Rachel Aaron who wrote the the book about yeah. writing 10,000 words a day? And that yeah. blows me away. <laughs> I read that and I was like, I can do that. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> her books are really good, too. It's unfair. I feel like if someone's that fast, they should be bad. But her books are great. Legend of Eli Monpress. If anyone gets tired of Grimdark, go read that. It's like the opposite of Grimdark. It's like... <laughs> It's like light, but not so light that it feels frivolous. It's like fun. I love those books. Noble Bright is the term people have been using for <laughs> the anti-Grimdark. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, my process is, is nothing complicated. You know, I sit on my couch with my laptop and type. You're a simple guy with a cool name, Jingle Wexler. Thank you. Yeah. You're my best. And, and cool books. Your cover art's pretty amazing, too. Yeah, um, I love... For Forbidden Library, they do internal art by the same guy who did the cover, and that's like my favorite thing about the production of those books because I just oh, nice. love working with artists. And what are you working on now? What's the next uh, project that you got uh, that you're going to be working on this week? Um, this week is going to be a little odd, actually. But but so I have a YA series which is tentatively titled Deep Walker, but that title is going to change. We're currently brainstorming new titles that will work better. Uh, it's in, in a fantasy world, and it's about a girl who gets sent as a, as a kind of sacrifice aboard a gigantic ghost ship where a bunch of sort of young teens who are, are given up by their various communities live and have established this sort of Lord of the Flies society. Um, and her assignment is to take over the ship and steal it for the, her government. And they all have magical powers because the, the ship demands sacrifices that, of people with magical powers. Um, and so that's, that's what I've, I've just turned in a draft of that, and I'm waiting for edits to come back. So that's sort of currently what I'm working on. And that's been a lot of fun. So that'll be YA, and it comes out in probably early 2019, so like a year from January maybe. And that's a trilogy. And then I have a series coming out from Orbit that doesn't have a title yet, 
because they didn't like the title I submitted it under. Nobody ever likes my titles. I'm bad <laughs> titles. I think The Thousand Names is literally the only title I've ever gotten to keep. Um, every other book I've ever written, the titles have changed. So the Orbit series, it's an epic fantasy trilogy. It's coming out in probably mid-2019. And it'll be interesting. It's much more kind of high magic than Thousand Names. It's about a brother and sister who the sister gets sort of kidnapped to go and join uh, a kind of monastic order uh, of wizards. And the brother is very angry about this and goes looking for forbidden knowledge in order to overturn their hold on the world. Um, And then they sort of meet back up later. Way cool. Yeah. I think of it as a kind of magical post-apocalypse. Like it's, it's this world where there was once a very high magic sort of not high tech, but like, you know, very high functioning magical society. And it is now all fallen into ruins. That's way cool. <clears throat> yeah. I'm, I'm psyched about that. It should be fun. So you, you've already done Flintlock fantasy, cyberpunk, urban fantasy, middle grade. Now you're going to do YA and then epic fantasy as well. Yes. That, that is an adequate description. You are diverse AF in your publishing approach. I like that. I do my best. I have, <laughs> ideas for things there's a file of them it's like 30 pages long and so i I gotta keep trying stuff when can we expect Django wexler paranormal romance is the question (sighs) next i don't know that'd be (laughs) although my so my editor at um ace rock is jessica wade and she's wonderful and in addition to science fiction and fantasy she also edits novels about cats that solve mysteries And so I have repeatedly threatened to write her a mystery solving cat book, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, I'm a cat person. And so this this would be right in my wheelhouse. And then at one point, I forget who I was with, but we were out at lunch and we brainstormed a book. I think it was a middle grade book about a time traveling cat that goes to various historical eras and solves mysteries. And so the first book would be Mr. Tibbles versus the Third Reich. Um, so someday when I have some free time, Mr. Tibbles versus the Third Reich. Nice. Sounds exciting. Um, I actually wrote a cat story one time. It was a steampunk cat, and uh, he had a gun, and he shot the gun, but somebody complained that cats can't shoot guns. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. Well, it could I better be, scrap it then. <laughs> could be a special gun operated yeah it's a good thing that cats don't have guns because cats are all sociopaths they're the <laughs> yes sociopaths seriously that should be a short story uh it's a the title it's a good thing cats don't have guns <laughs> what are your cats names Django? my cats are uh tomo and sakaki which is from azumanga Dayo because it, it sort of suited their personalities but yeah that's, that's presh <laughs> they're great they're great cats. Have you posted pictures of them on your social media feed or anything? Or? Yeah. You have? Okay. Uh, I think if you click on my Twitter on any given day, there is probably a greater than 80% chance there's a picture of my cats. Oh, that's cool. Let's go check out your Twitter hey. right now. Hey, do your cats lay on your laptop and pre- prevent you from writing? I see that a lot. They don't actually. They will sometimes sit in my seat on the couch. Um. I'm retweeting your cat right now. By the way. Okay. Uh, my girlfriend, Aww. they like to sit in her lap. 
um, which and like trap her arms, which sometimes makes it hard to run. Mm. She's got them better trained than I do. She pays more attention to them. I feel like, which can be hard because they're very demanding of attention. So it's yeah, a good thing of... they don't they don't have guns. Yeah, <laughs> if they had guns, we'd all be in trouble. Yeah, your social media is gaming sessions and cats. Yeah, pretty much. That's and a I book do. cover here and there. What's your gaming session for this weekend? Can you give us a sneak preview? This weekend, I don't actually have gaming. Um, oh. Doing a, um, I have a, a kind of a party that I set up here in Seattle. That's like every month, a bunch of writers and writer adjacent people we get together and hang out. And so that's this weekend. Usually about three weekends a month, I do board gaming. So, you know, we just play whatever board games happen to be cool um, at the moment. Lately, we've been playing a lot of Terraforming Mars, which is a lot of fun. I want to get that one. I have a huge game board game collection. Well, for me anyway, I have about 40 games now. I used to play more D&D, but like the time commitment of that finally just got to be too much. So board gaming is like a good alternative because... You don't have to try to get the same group together every week. You can just be like, hey, board gaming at my house, whoever wants to come. That's fun. Yeah. It's a good, good, it's a good compromise with like, I want to play games, but I'm also an adult and have <laughs> limited time. I can't spend six hours, two days a week anymore. <laughs> well, folks can go to the show notes and they can get uh, links to your books on Amazon. The Thousand Names is the first book in the Flintlock Fantasy series. And then you've got the newest book coming out. Yeah. I'm so excited. It's the last book in the series, which is like the first time I've finished anything even close to this long. Yeah, that's ex- exciting. So is this the, the end end of the series or the end for now? It's the end. I mean, it, it brings the story to a pretty solid conclusion. I like that. Okay. I could do something more in that world, I guess, but it doesn't. I don't know. The story I wanted to tell is pretty much done. I have a and- billion other worlds and story ideas that I'm going to need to get to. So five books at 200,000 words each, that's about a million words to tell that story. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying when I think You're wordy. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. It would probably be a good feeling to see that final copy released and have all that series kind of sitting on your bookcase there. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward. I'm looking forward to sharing it with everyone. I've gotten to the point where, like, when I'm writing a book, it goes through the phases of like, this is great. Oh, no, it's terrible. Oh, no, it's great again. Oh, no, it's terrible. And then like after a while, it kind of cools down and you're like, I kind of want to share this with people. It takes a while, though. My process is like, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. Oh, fuck it. I'm going to publish it anyway. No, publish it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's been a great conversation with you uh, this morning, Django, just to touch base and to uh, let the world know about uh, all the cool things that you have Going on, uh, any con appearances coming up for you in the next month or two? Not in the next month or two. I'm pretty much working on on the YA book until the end of the year. Um, So probably not until next year. Um, I'll definitely be at Norwest Con next year here in Seattle and probably at Emerald City. And then I'm working out. I'm working on another couple of appearances, but it's not nailed down yet. Okay. Well... JangoWexler.com is the website. You're on Facebook and Twitter. If folks want to stalk you there, look Twitter, at your cats. Twitter's probably best if you want to get in touch with me. Just okay. at Django Wexler. Drop me a All right. Hit him up on Twitter. Horse problems. Horse problems. Hashtag horse problems. On Hashtag Twitter. horse problems. Hit us up. <laughs> Tell us your horse problems. Fix that shit. Quick like. 
Django Wexler, thanks so much for joining us on the Grim Tidings Podcast today. Best of luck to you and all of your Flintlock fantasy publishing YA cyberpunk <laughs> middle grade adventures forthcoming. And uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. Available online at thegrimtidingspodcast.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. And for daily updates on all things Grimdark, be sure to drop by our Facebook group at GrimDarkFiction Readers and Writers. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye.